It is so good to see you today. I want to say a big thank you to Kent uh, Spann, who served uh, in my place for the last couple of weeks. It's been three weeks since I've been in church, and I was writing my, in my journal today. I was thanking God that we have community, that we have a church family. I couldn't wait to come and see your face. Amen. I've been... <laughs> Some more than others. Uh, I, I, I appreciate so much the way that you've out, just an outpouring of your love towards Marla and I in these last several weeks. And if you're online or here live, you don't know me, I'm Greg Cooper, the pastor here at First Baptist. I have been recently diagnosed with bladder cancer and I had surgery a few weeks ago. I'm, um, all I know is that's what I have. I don't know what type or what the treatment's going to be. So tomorrow morning we meet with the James Cancer Center with an oncology team, of uh, both medical and surgical. They will give me the pathology report, the full rundown, what the treatment plan's going to be. So please be in prayer for us concerning that. We just are asking that God would just assemble the best team that will bring about the best um, course of action given my type of cancer. Um, God is good, God is faithful, and I've decided to uh, journal through this whole process, and um, it's called My Journey with Jesus, and I'm using the 23rd Psalm as the basis for this. I love the 23rd Psalm, and um, so I'm using this, and I will be writing a blog every week to keep you updated on my status, and uh, Barb will keep you updated through One Calls. We'll, we'll publish the, uh, the, the um, blog on uh, Facebook, uh, we'll send out an email uh, portion of it. We'll put hard copies out in the foyer. Uh, we'll keep you updated. I plan on um, working and preaching as much as I possibly can. So I plan on being in the pulpit every week that I, you know, unless some uh, some reason I, I can't be for that Sunday. So I just want to say thank you for um, the calls, the, the cards, the meals, those who have helped us. Big shout out to Paula Marr. It's great having your own personal nurse that lives just like right across from me. And so she's been, after my surgery, every day there doing my vital signs. And uh, I scared her a little bit because my blood pressure went through the roof a couple days. But I think I'm back down to normal. It might be back up after tomorrow. I don't know. But uh, I've never had high blood pressure before. So this is a new thing for me. Uh, just for the outpouring, uh, many people you've been asking, what can we do for what can we do for you? I really don't know at this point. Other than just keep praying, um, feel free to call me. If I don't answer, uh, don't take that as a slam. Uh, just leave a voicemail. I will call you back. I want to still want to be your pastor. I want to function as much as I can in my role here at the church. Um, I am going to be leaning on some people on, in other areas harder than I have before. Text messages are fine. I love the people who, sing, uh, who send me songs of worship and praise. I'm trying to put together playlists so that if I have to go through testing that's last you know for a period of time I can just plug in my you know my headphone and and just listen to that while I'm enduring whatever it is they're doing to me so uh, so thank you Heather she's been sending me a lot of worship music and I really really appreciate that and the prayers that are sent to me um, it is this is a this is a marathon it's not a sprint and I know that um, but it is it is one that uh, the Lord is walking with me every day. So um, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read out of my journal. 
And uh, I hope to, and perhaps at the end of this journey, to write a book uh, out of this experience that, that I have and going through. And, um, you know, I know this not only affects me and my family, it affects you as a church. And I just can't say enough how blessed I am to have you in my corner. And so on Thursday, on um, February the 10th, I wrote down Proverbs 13, 12. It's going to kind of set up what we're going to go into in Romans chapter 5. It says that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. It doesn't say healing deferred or success deferred. The true expression of hope runs much deeper than wishful thinking. Hope is a desire coupled with a confident expectation that God is working even when we can't see it because he loves us and he is faithful. When we lose hope, the confidence that God is working everything out for our good, that's when discouragement, depression, despair, and hopelessness sets in. That is when my heart becomes sick, and a sick heart will produce a sick body. The antidote to this is true needs, and that he will heal me and deliver me from all of my fears. False hope says, I wish, true hope says, I trust that God will and so then I, I wrote some other things, but then I came and I said, as I, as I study today, Romans 5, 12 through 21, I reminded just how deep and destructive sin truly is. Forgive me, Father, for allowing other things to take precedence over you. May my heart be stripped of every idol that has been placed on the throne of my heart. If cancer has taught me anything, it is that the illusion of control is just that. It is an illusion. Nothing is greater than you, though. The beauty of salvation against the backdrop of human depravity shines so brightly. Help me convey that to our church this weekend. I pray for the salvation of souls, the repentance of hearts that have drifted from you, the tearing down of idols. I pray that we would love you as passionately as the day we were saved and would serve you with a sense of abandonment, giving to you the first fruits of our time, our talents, and our treasures. Cleanse my heart, empty it of self, and fill it with Jesus, for it is in Christ that my hope is secure. And so today as we look at Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21, um, in this part of Romans, in this section, Paul is kind of wrapping up the theme of salvation, and then he's going to move into uh, the theme in chapters 6 through 8, sanctification, that is, now that you are saved, how does God, through the Holy Spirit, work in us to enable us to walk in this freedom that Christ has secured on our behalf? So in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, we talked about the benefits of believing in Christ, and so Paul wants to wrap that up by saying, listen, that you only have one or two options in life. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no in-between. There's no middle ground. And so if God were to um, look at the world, though there are many nations and tongues and languages, people groups, from God's perspective, you are either in Adam or you're in Christ. And being in Christ is one of the favorite um, phrases that the Apostle Paul uses in terms of our relationship with him and the benefit of being in that relationship, that every spiritual blessing of God is found in Christ. Jesus in us and we in him. And so today's text is going to give us a perspective on all of human history and a perspective on our everyday struggles. Why do we struggle? 
why are there such horrible things that happen in this world? And why do things like abuse and cancer and any other vile thing you can think of, why, why do we deal with that day in and day out? And if God is so loving and kind and gracious as he says he is, why does not he not eradicate that? And so Paul in this section makes a contrast and a comparison about what it means to be in Adam or in Christ. And the differentiation is huge. And it is critical for us to understand this for the basis of our salvation and to help us as believers to fight against our three enemies, which he's going to unpack and unfold in chapters 6 through 8. The enemy of Satan, who is the, um, you know, the prince and the power of the air in the world in which we live. He has a system. He has a kingdom. The Bible talks about the two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God's beloved son. And how that kingdom operates here on planet earth and how it interacts with our thoughts as well as our lives. And then we have to deal with the world, the world's system, the world's philosophy, and we have to deal with the flesh. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the flesh, though you have a new nature, the old nature has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The residual effects of that old nature is still in your thought processes. And until you begin clearing that out, nothing changes in our lives. Transformation is based on the transforming of your thought processes, your mind that leads to the transformation of your actions and your feelings. And so let's look at this by the basis of we're going to talk about our ruin, our rescue, and our reign. Our ruin, and this is in verses 12 through 14, our ruin through the decision and the actions of Adam. And so it says, therefore, verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as you couldn't break a command if there wasn't a command, right? So they didn't have the law before Moses. Uh, so, but there still was sin going on, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. And so the Bible says that everything started, therefore, just as sin entered through, into the world through what? One man. Who's the one man? Adam. Right? In Adam, in Christ, the one man, sin entered into the world. And so God created Adam, and ultimately, we all descend from Adam. I know that evolution says that we were partial animals and part human, and there was a trans transitional form at some time where, you know, monkeys became people or whatever, you know, whatever your thought process is on the context of evolution. But I want you to know the Bible is very clear that Adam and Eve were not um, prototypes in that they were not just like, oh, well, they weren't real human beings. They're just kind of painting a picture. No, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created, Elohim created. He created by speaking into existence. He formed the planet to house humanity. He formed a garden, and he placed a literal historical couple called Adam and Eve in the midst of that garden, and he gave them something to do. They were to rule over God's creation. 
And so God puts Adam and Eve in the backyard of Satan who was already, uh, you know, kind of hovering around this world. Satan was kicked out of heaven due to his sin. Those who sided with him, the demons, were also, fat, you know, cast down to the earth. And so Satan has the ability to roam in the heavenlies, yes, but this was kind of his domain. This was going to be his kingdom, the planet. And so God enters into the realm of Satan's kingdom, and he plants the Garden of Eden. He puts Adam and Eve in the animal kingdom and plant life, and he says, now I want you to rule over my creation. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and I want you to expand my kingdom all the way around the globe by submitting to me and rendering yourself under my authority and walking with me and fellowshipping with me, and I will supply every single need you have except for one thing you cannot do. You cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God put that parameter as a protection and not just as like squelch their fun. And so the Bible says God created. And the reason this is so significant is he's going to tell us, again, that we're either under Adam or under Jesus. Adam is the problem. Jesus is the solution not Adam, right? And so if, if a historical Adam does not represent mankind in his sinfulness, then a historical Jesus could never represent mankind in his righteousness. Adam was a historical being. He is the first created human being placed on planet earth. Now here's the second reason that is important is because Adam represents the federal head of humanity. And I'm going to unpack that, what I mean, because you, you get, you've got to get this. The Bible speaks in terms of groups. We like to speak in terms of individuality. You know, in America, we're all about being the individual. You know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to do my thing. And, and so God sees us as collective, as families, as groups, because God relates to his creation through what the Bible calls covenants. There are five major covenants in the Bible. And one of those covenants, the first covenant was called the Adamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam. The last covenant that God has made was that through Christ, that called the new covenant. So in Adam you have the old covenant, in Christ you have the new covenant. Adam represents the old covenant. Jesus represents the new covenant. And so a covenant is the mechanism by which God administers his kingdom. Remember, God's kingdom is his rule and his reign over his creation. And God's covenants are administered and mediated by his representatives to function according to his chain of command. And so God mediates his covenant through people within his ordained order. So Adam and Eve, Adam was the head of of this new this old covenant, the first covenant, and he was to rule over God's creation, but that does not mean that God abdicated his throne. He didn't say, Adam, just rule over my creation however you see fit. No, God had a covenant relationship. He says, I want you to rule over my creation. Here's how I want you to rule over my creation. I'm going to walk with you in the garden every day. We're going to have a fellowship with one another. You're going to surrender and submit yourself to me. And if you'll follow me all the days of your life, I will continue to be with you. And so our authority is to rule under God 
not apart from God. And each covenant has a head. And the responsibility of the head is to make sure that those who are within the context of the covenant cared for the terms of the covenant and cared for one another. So Adam is the head of the human race. That's why when Adam sinned, his decision impacted us. Now we're thousands of years from Adam, but because he was the federal head of all humanity, when he chose to sin, his choice affected all of us, even in the here and now. All the way down through all the generations since the time of Adam. Now, I know people say, well, that's not fair. I wasn't there. I didn't make the choice. I think that if I'd been Adam, and I'd been in the garden, and I'd been set in the same situation that he was, I would not have chosen to partake in this forbidden tree. Thank you. You can't even handle a bag of Oreos in your kitchen, (laughs) let alone this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so as they're in the garden, obviously Satan comes in, enters the scene, and he is the tempter seeking to usurp Adam and Eve out from under the authority and the rule and the care of their creator. It's the same thing he does with us day in and day out. Strike out on your own. You don't need God. Call your own shots. You're the authority. Do your own thing it'll all work out well, and it doesn't. In the same way, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm just the shepherd. And so as the head, he is the one who is the administrator of the covenant. Men, you are the head of your family, which means God holds you responsible for enacting the covenant relationship between you, your wife, your children, and your creator. And sometimes we, we want to abdicate that. We want to shrug that off. That doesn't mean that you're the boss and you're the owner and you get to call all the shots. As the covenant headship of my family, it means that I, I as the head, will love my wife as Christ loved the church. I will give myself to her as Christ gave himself for us. And so it's not, well, I'm the boss, I'm the head of the home, you submit to me, do what I say. That is an abuse of the headship that God has placed you over. And so uh, in the story of Adam and Eve, God makes the man first. He's supposed to be the head of the family. God speaks to the man and tells him, I want you to rule over my creation, but here's the one thing you can't do. Now that's not a huge job description, right? You just can't eat of this one tree. Of all, everything else in creation is fair game, except this one tree. And then he creates Eve and um, brings them together, and everything is incredible. They live in this garden. God is their friend. They're naked 24-7. It's fantastic. I mean, they're really having a, a great time. And then the enemy shows up and, again, speaks to whom? He speaks to Eve. Why does he go to Eve? Why doesn't he go to Adam? He's supposed to be the head of the family. I want you to understand, when you read Genesis 3, in the conversation Eve has with Satan, when he finally convinces her to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says she partakes of the fruit, 
Now watch this very carefully. And then gave it to her husband who was with her. It wasn't that Adam was out somewhere else, oblivious to what was going on. Now there's a warning here. Eve was deceived, according to the New Testament. She thought she was helping, but she wasn't helping. And as a result, she partakes in this forbidden fruit, gives some to Adam. And there, the moral of the story is this. Adam did nothing, and he said nothing, but he partook. This is the weakness of men, is that oftentimes when the tempter comes into the realm of our family covenant, men who are weak say nothing and do nothing, when in fact we are to be the head of our household, the protector of our families, and we better say something and we better do something because if you abdicate your role and responsibility, which by the way, God will hold you accountable to, then you are allowing Satan to have a segue into the realm of your family. And whenever Satan has a segue into anything, it is always for the purpose of destruction. So I say this to husbands, to men in our church, I'm telling you, I, 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 do everything you can to make sure that your walk with Jesus is deep. That you're walking with him and you're talking with him and you have your radar up and that you rise up and take the role and the responsibility for your wife and your children that you ought to be taking. Do not abdicate that role of teaching your children spiritual things over to your wife. It's great that she does that, but it is your responsibility as a father to be engaged in that process if you want to help protect your children. So I'm telling you, right now our country's in a wreck because over half of our families now have no father as the head of the home. And we know statistically, I grew up in that atmosphere, I, we know statistically that fatherless homes results in far more drug abuse, alcohol abuse, spousal abuse, incarceration, dropping out of school, all these kinds of things because there's no male authority over us and so now we're just given over to our own sinful passions. Uh, by the time I was 16 years old, I was already sitting in a police department in Granville, Ohio because of what I'd done. And I have to call my mother and say, hey, you, you've got to come pick me up. They've got me here. There's me and my cousin and a friend and my mom's like, oh, stop it. You're, you know, she thought I was pulling her leg. Here, mom, talk to the officer. And uh, it wasn't a joke. And so what does God do when he confronts Adam and Eve? They have sinned. Who did God go to first, Eve or Adam? Adam, what have you done? Where are you? And so in the deep roots, to be a man is to be a leader, to be responsible, in a position of headship, we live in a culture that has replaced husbands and fathers with government, and we wonder why we have so many problems, because the family was not designed to have and flourish under the dominion of government, but over headship. 
So I just challenge us as a church, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not a, a believer in Christ, I understand none of this means anything to you. You don't get it. You'll just do your own thing. You'll cave to the flesh. You'll cave to the world system. You'll cave to the voice of the enemy. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ as a man and you have a family, you had better get in tune with the Holy Spirit because here are the problems that come about. The problems that we face in our world, in our lives, in our families is the result of the presence of sin. And this is what he says. Sin entered through what? Through one man. And so, um, I mean, human sin originated. And so theologians call this the original sin. Now, obviously, Satan and his demons are the first ones who sinned and rebelled against God. But in the context of Adam as God's first human creation, it is the original sin, which means that we are now born into the world because everyone is a biological, spiritual descendant of Adam because he is the head of humanity, that we were born into this world with a sin nature. Sin is who you are before what you do. See, that's why you can go to a doctor, but he can't prescribe you a pill that will cure your sin problem. You can go to a counselor who can give you all kinds of wise counseling about how to manage some of the implications and complications of your sin, but they cannot cure you of your sin problem. We all were born into the world with this sin issue, and because the problem is spiritual, before it is practical, it takes the Holy Spirit of God to fix the problem. And even with the Holy Spirit of God, it takes a lifetime to get us fixed. <laughs> Amen? Amen? None of us have arrived. None of us are there. And so this is what chapters 6 through 8 is all about, is how the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and the Spirit and everything God has laid at our disposal to help fix our sin-problemed lives. And so the Bible says from out of the womb, man, we, we, we were born with this sin nature. Now, here's one of the things I know about young people. When young people were growing up, and I was the same way, your parents, grandparents were all the same way. You know what? Man, when I, when I get to be an adult, I'm going to fix the world, and I'm going to fix all the problems. How's that working for us? Uh, if, you, if you listen to the news, do you know what's going on around the world we know that no one has fixed the problem. Everybody thinks they can fix the problem. We want to fix the problem, but we just don't know how to fix the problem because we cannot fix the problem. And so we fall prey to those problems. And so because we have a sin nature, we have personal sin, right? We daily live in a disobedience to the God who created us and loves us. And so like Adam and Eve, though, what did Adam and Eve do when God confronted them? <laughs> Adam says, Lord, everything was great in the garden until that woman came. And you're the one who sent her, by the way. Uh, ever since then, things have been crazy around here. And then God turns to Eve and asks her the same question. Eve became, Eve became charismatic and said, well, it's the devil that made me do it. That's, it's, it's his fault. It's not mine. All right, so ever since Adam and Eve, what do we do with our sin problem and our sin issues? We lay blame to other people. 
It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's culture. It's the system. It's the environment that I grew up in. It's my personality. And we blame it on everyone and everything. And so when it comes to authority over us, we deliberately, intentionally, and we willfully rebel against God's rules, whether it be for society, for our family. I mean, this is just the basic attitude of our heart. You knew this as a teenager. You couldn't wait to get out from underneath the thumb of your parents and do your own thing. And at some point in your life, we adopt Adam's thinking, I know better than God. I would rather do my own thing. And that's why when we see signs that says, do not touch, we've got to touch it. If do not enter, we've got to peek over there and we've got to find out what's on the other side. This is our nature. It is our nature to sin because we, we are in Adam when we come into this world and problems result of that. Then here's the second problem is it results in is the penalty of sin. He said sin produces what? Death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The payment of sin is death. Now I've got had Paul stop there, we would be most miserable, but he went on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in his son Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is the reason why we know we're in Adam is because we all die. There's not one single person who's going to make it out of this world escaping death unless Jesus comes back and raptures the church and pulls us out of here. We're all going to die. We are the walking dead. But even though we die physically does not mean we have to die spiritually. Right? So there are three types of death that the Bible talks about. The first one is physical death. This is why we all die. It moves this, this physical death moves into all kinds of realms. It's, it's the result of every disease and uh, natural disaster and painful struggles with cancer and children born with dirt, birth defects and divorces and rapes and wars and abuse. And then there's spiritual death where you're separated from God. Where was God's presence displayed with Adam and Eve in the garden? When they sinned, what happened? They were removed from the garden. They were removed from the physical presence of God because God, because Adam is the headship of humanity, he died spiritually. The spirit of God moved out of him, the spirit that God had breathed into them, into him, and as a result, they experienced spiritual death. So there's physical death, there's spiritual death, and then there is eternal death. If I die separated from God, through his son Jesus Christ, outside of his son Jesus Christ, that as I've chosen to go my own way, to live in my own rebellion, to forge my own path apart from Jesus, if I die in Adam, then I will experience what the Bible calls eternal death or eternal separation from God. So let me put it in terms that, you, that will help you remember. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died immediately in their spirit, progressively in their soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions. This is why we have a sin nature when we come into the world. This is why we struggle with sin every day of our lives, because they died progressively in their soul, and ultimately they died in their bodies. So what Christ has come to do is to reverse all of that, to bring us spiritual life, to bring us true freedom as we grow in this relationship with Christ, And even though this physical body will one day cease to function, 
the moment that it does, my soul and spirit move out of my body into the presence of the Lord, and my body at a later time will be resurrected by Christ. It will be made whole and new and transformed in the likeness of Christ, reunited with my soul and spirit, and God will have completed the process of salvation in Christ. This is what God wants for us. And here's the third thing, problems result of the power of sin. Paul, being a Jewish, uh, knew that somebody's going to ask the question, well, uh, how could people be held accountable before, you know, for keeping the law before the Moses of the law, you know, before the laws were given by Moses? Well, he's, Paul goes on to say, well, that, that wasn't what was against them. They didn't have the laws. They didn't know they were breaking laws, the laws of God. But we do know that after Adam sinned and he was forced out of the garden, if you re- by the time you get to Genesis 6, the world has become so wicked that God says, yeah, we're going to start over. I'm going to select a family, we're going to pull them out, we're going, to, we're going to save them, and we're going to start over. And there's a whole reason why that happened, and we'll get that to another, another day. But it's not because of man's sinful acts of breaking the Mosaic law that they die. It's because we are born with a sinful nature, and they committed sinful acts. Now, let me just put this in why this is important in everyday life, and we'll get to um, the rescue and... Uh, the rain, which is much shorter than the first point, okay? Here's, this, here's how this plays out with us every single day of our lives. Every sin problem and issue you deal with, your sinful heart is at the root of the problem, All right? The problem with the human heart is the human heart. The Bible says that our human hearts are, are sinful, they're wicked, they're deceptive outside of Christ, And so if you believe you're a good person just getting better and you have unlimited potential, then look at your life and answer the question, why do you keep messing up? Why do you keep doing things that you wish you hadn't done, saying things you wish you hadn't said? Why do we continue to lie, steal, cheat, and all these other things? And why do we keep dealing with these issues over and over and over and over again? Because they were a part of your sin nature, right? It was your given nature to sin, and you just began living out your nature, your natural nature, which is to sin. That's just what people do. And so it is the problem that underlies all of our problems. It's why families struggle. I mean, how many of you at the holidays, sometimes you have to, you know, get together as large families, an extended family, and, and sometimes you, you hope that certain family and the extended family doesn't show up because, like, they're the odd one, they're the weird ones, and they just like, you know, whoa. And, and if you don't see that in your extended families, it's because you are the odd one, you are the weird one, and, but everybody sees that in you. And so sometimes extended families, do we have problems in extended families? Do we fight? Do we quarrel with one another? Do sometimes we say, uh, I won't speak to you anymore. I don't want to be around you anymore. Sure, we have all kinds of struggles in our families. We have abuse and we have affairs that take place and there's so much of a sin issue within the context of our families, even when the context of parenting. I mean, think about this. Did you teach your children how to sin? Did you teach them to say no? Did you teach them to lie? Did you teach them, you know, to do sin 101? We don't have classes here at the church for that. I've never had a parent call me up and say, Pastor, you know, my child is so perfect. I'm worried. Can we get them in a sin class? Because I think they need to have a little bit of that in their, their DNA. No, we have a sin nature. 
which is why we need a new nature, why, which is why the priority of parenting is to teach your children about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit who gives them a new nature to disciple them and to raise them up and instruct them in the ways of the Lord because it's the only way that they can get a grip upon their own sin nature. What about the systems and the institutions that we have in our country? It's a real popular right now to talk about systemic sin, but not personal sin. Their sin and not my sin, everyone else's sin, I'm just the victim. And so uh, we live in a time of critical theory where they just, everybody just criticizes, which is, the, by the way, the spirit of the enemy. The Greek word for accuser, which is labeled to, against Satan, is that of critic. It is a demonic system. And we say that it is the problem that is, if that is the problem, okay, then what is going to be the solution? You see, if you just tell everybody that they are a systemic racist, that just brings self-condemnation, which is the role of the enemy. Just make people feel bad about themselves, beat them down, stamp, stomp on them, grind them into the ground. I'm not saying that racism does not exist. I, it absolutely does. But if you try to teach children that they are systemically racist from the time they come out of their womb, which is not true if you've ever been around kids uh, in, in classrooms, then people just feel condemned. That's not a solution. There are solutions, but that's not one of them. And so nobody wants to take responsibility for their own actions, their own sins, and therefore we don't get anywhere. Even if we had a perfect system, it would be, it would be run by flawed, sinful people who would ruin it. Were Adam and Eve in a perfect environment? Hello. Did they ruin it? Yes, they did. So the myth is, if we just had the perfect system, we would be like living like heaven on earth. Well, good luck with that. B.F. Skinner many years ago wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. It was all about behavior modification. It was about how you can modify the behavior of an entire nation. The problem is, who's going to oversee that? Well, that was the problem. So, well, we'll select a group of people who will be the overseers of that demonic covenant, and guess what happens with those people you put as overseas? Well, they're flawed as we are, and so the system gets flawed, and it does nothing but spiral downward, not upward. Are you getting, are you getting a sense here of what's happening in our world? Why is history not evolving? Because when we look at the laws of God, the, the word of God, people say, well, God's word is just so restrictive. It's the lid. It's the limiter. So we need to get rid of, you know, gender identifications and marriage and sexual morals and generosity and repentance and personal responsibility. And those things are limiting us. If we could just rid ourselves of all those things and allow us to express our unlimited potential as a human being, we'd live on planet. It'd be like heaven on earth. Really? Well, let me give you a microcosm, microscopic view called defunding the police. In every city that defunded the police, what happened to the criminalization of the city? It skyrocketed. God has placed authority over us, structure over us to curtail the potential of our sinful hearts. God's word is not limiting, it is freeing. 
because God enables us to live in the freedom of Christ. He sets parameters. Why did he set the parameter in the garden? The same reason he sets the parameter in our lives. It is for our protection, not for squelching our happiness and our fun. This is why the gospel is so important. There's a God and he has some laws and we are sinners and we need a savior. We need help. We need a new nature. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus Christ. We need to be in Christ. Otherwise, we are doomed. And as everything is collapsing and getting worse, the church needs to be open. The church needs the gospel preached. The church needs to make plans to extend the kingdom of God across the face of this globe. It is not time for the church to sit back, sit down, and shut up and do nothing like Adam did in the garden. It is time for the church to rise up and take the gospel, the only, the only answer to humanity's sin problem. And so that brings us to our rescue through the decision of Jesus. Verse 15 says, but the gift of the gift." What gift? The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that come by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the, the result of the one man's sin. That's Adam's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. In Adam, condemnation. In Christ, I'm justified. Remember what justification means? It means I'm in right standing with God. All of my sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my past. He sees Christ formed in me, and he indwells me of the Holy Spirit of God so that I can live in the freedom of Christ that enables me to live life to its fullest and most abundant way. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. In other words, what Adam did affect all of humanity. What Christ has done can affect all of humanity. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So Paul makes a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Jesus. Listen, he says, man, this is, this is grace. This is what God offers us. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it. We are sinners by nature and by choice. But God, remember in chapter 5, verse, but God demonstrated his love for us, his grace towards us, that while we were yet sinners, who died for us? Christ died for us. So that he might extend his gift of grace that we might be justified in his eyes. Listen, socialism is a counterfeit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Socialism says, we have free things to give you. No, you don't. You stole them from somebody else. There's no such a thing as free house care. There's no such thing as free um, health care, free education. Somebody's paying for it, and guess what? It's you. <laughs> Listen, God is the only one who really does free. The salvation, the gift that God offers us, he says, is free to us. 
We didn't have to pay a thing. God didn't rob from us in order to provide for our salvation. Jesus supplied every single resource that was needed. Every single resource. We brought nothing to the table. And that's why the Bible never says, well, clean up your life, get your act together, then you might crawl to God, and maybe God will look down upon you and have pity on you and allow you to come and be a part of his kingdom. No, God says you bring every stinking sinful thing, every thought, every action you've ever done, because there is nothing you have ever done or said that is outside the realm of my free gift of grace through my son, Jesus Christ. That is a gift. And so just as Adam displays humanity and Christ displays the new covenant, ultimately Adam made a decision and thankfully Jesus made a decision also and his decision overturned Adam's decision. Now this runs against our American culture that says I'm good, I'm free, and I'm independent to make my own decisions. Well, you might think you're good because you compare yourself to somebody else, but you're probably not as good as you think you are. Uh, you're free to a certain degree to make decisions, but you're not independent. The Bible says, watch this, because when we came out of the womb in Adam, we were enslaved to sin, enslaved, not free, enslaved to sin, and as our enslavement to sin, we became the objects of God's wrath, and if God were to just let us go on our own, we've just become more and more enslaved to sin and the downward spiral that would happen in our lives over the course of time, as well as our society and our world over the course of time. But God chose to step in and remedy a solution. And his name is Jesus. You might be free to choose, but you're not really free to choose. Only Adam and Eve really had the total freedom of choice, but even they chose to rebel. Now, I put on your outline a contrast between Adam in, in Christ and Adam, you're in sin, Christ sinless, death versus life, condemnation versus justification, disobedience versus obedience, make sinners, make righteous, trespass, the free gift of grace. And so I'm, I'm just saying through that is, listen, here's, here's the comparison. Both Adam and Eve committed a single Adam and Jesus committed a single act. Both Adam and Jesus influenced the entire race. So again, I pose the question to you, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Because what you see in this comparison, if you're in Adam, this is, this is your description. Sin nature, life of disobedience, death, eternal death if you remain in this position, condemnation, disobedience. I mean, it's not a very good, it's not a very lovely job description here. But in Christ, man, sinless life, justification, obedience, righteous, grace. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's the life I want. And so Paul, he tidies this all up and says, now here is our reign through the actions and the decisions of both Adam and Jesus. He says in verse 20, for the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the two fill in the blanks, and I'm done. In Adam, you are under the reign of sin, which leads to death. In Christ, you are under the reign of grace, which always leads to 
life. Always leads to life. And I might add this caveat. You might jot this down in the bottom of your notes. Here's what I put. For the believer, grace always outruns sin and death. Always outruns sin and death. So let's bow our heads. I ask you the question once again. Are you an Adam or are you in Christ? And you might be sitting here and really thinking, you know what? I'm, I just really don't know. I'm, I'm really not sure where, where I fall in this category. Well, you can be for, for sure today. And the Bible says that the way we transition, Colossians 1.13, how you are transitioned out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son is by faith in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sin, for a relationship with the creator, God the Father. That you're not counting on anyone or anything else other than Jesus. If, the, if cancer has taught me anything, it is that here's what it really means to put the full weight of your trust in someone else. And that's what salvation is about. It is about pulling, putting the full weight of your trust in Jesus who died in your place so that you might experience his gift of grace, the forgiveness of your sin, the clothing of your body in the righteousness of Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who now begins to transform your heart and your life into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? Now, getting you to that point might be a process in your life, but there has to be a point in time in which you make that decision, you make that transition where you embrace Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life. And if you've never made that decision, I pray for you today. Just open up your heart and ask Jesus. Just pray something like, Jesus, and I know that I've sinned. I, I know that I'm flawed. I, I know that I can't get it right, and I've tried a thousand different ways. But I do believe that you love me and that you came into this world and you died for me. And not only did you die for me, but you arose from the grave to demonstrate your power over sin and death. And so I'm asking you today, right now, I'm putting my full trust in you to be the savior of my life, the forgiver of my sins, to be the Lord, the CEO of my life. I give you control of my life from this day forward. Help me to be who you have created me to be. Help me to walk in the freedom from the enslavement of sin that has held me in bondage all of my life. Because you said, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Lord, if anyone's prayed that prayer this morning or online, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would confirm to their spirit that they have, in fact, become a child of yours. It's fact, it may not be feeling that when we put our hope and our trust in Jesus alone, that you do exactly what you promised to do. You establish a new covenant relationship between ourselves and you. 
And Jesus is the head of that covenant. And I thank you, God, that you have saved them and you have indwelt them. And now, oh God, may, may your Holy Spirit make that clear to them. And I want to pray over our church this morning. Maybe you're saved and you are in Christ. You know you're in Christ. But man, maybe you're still a, sh a shame-filled saint of God. Like your past hurts and actions just continue to haunt you day after day. I want to pray for those of you who maybe you grew up in the church and you were a religious saint, right? It was just all about keeping the rules and, and um, you know, doing the right thing, and, but yet you found yourself becoming very judgmental over people, and, and you just, man, it's just been like being on a carousel, just around and around, over and over again, and there's just no joy in your life. There's just no authenticity in, in, authenticity in your relationship and your walk with God, and, and maybe you're here, and you're just burdened right now, and you're, you're just burdened for someone or something in your life that's going on, and Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe somebody left you, betrayed you, lied to you, took advantage of you, used you. And, and this is where you are, and you come before the Lord. Maybe you're just weary, and you're broken. You're just tired, and you just don't want to take it anymore. Maybe for some of you, you just feel like you never measure up. It's like Satan's always condemning you and hounding you. and You just, the accuser is just yelling in your ear day in and day out, and you just feel like you never measure up. Maybe you have an addiction. Maybe it's drug, alcohol, food, shopping, gambling, pornography. I don't, I don't know what it might be, but it, it's just that dark side of you just haunts you, and you, you've promised God you wouldn't do it over and over again, but you find yourself going right back to the same stuff. And maybe for some of you, you're just struggling to trust God in, in some area of your life. I just want to pray grace over you today. Father, thank you that you see and you know our human limitations and frailty. And though we may boast in our independence, God, you created us as dependent beings, wholly dependent upon you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you extend your grace to those who are shame-filled, to those who have been rule keepers all of their lives and just, just have lost the, the intimacy of the relationship between themselves and you and those who are burdened and those who have been betrayed or are just weary and tired. God, I just pray grace over those who are struggling with addictions, who are feeling anxious about the future, or, or just, God, just are not able to, to fully surrender to you. God, I pray that you'll unhitch that trailer off of their lives. And I just pray grace upon them. I pay, pray you pour out your grace upon our church in these days ahead, God, that we would be found faithful and true ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe it is, and we know it is, the solution to humanity's problems. And so, Lord, help us in the days and the weeks ahead to begin unpacking everything inside of us that has held us back from experiencing this freedom in Jesus, that we might offload the sins that so easily beset us, so easily entangle our minds and our emotions and our actions. God, I pray that one thread at a time, you'll just start pulling it away and pulling it away and pulling it away until you begin to uncover the portrait of Jesus that lies beneath the webbing of our thoughts 
that keeps us from having the mind of Christ and the character of Christ and living in the life of Christ. May you grant to us your grace and your victory in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. God's people said, amen. Let's stand.